This is Minnesota Liberty, brought to you by the Libertarian Party of Minnesota, bringing you peace, prosperity, and freedom from the land of 10,000 lakes. Hello and welcome to Minnesota Liberty. I am Jason Cleats, one of your hosts. And I'm Troy Felton, your other host. If you like the information you hear from us, uh, reach out to us at lpmn.org to find out more information and become a member. Tonight, we are going to be talking with Toby Leonard. Toby is a gun shop owner in Mankato, Minnesota, and general expert on what's going on in the state when it comes to legislation on gun rights. So without further ado, let's bring in Toby. Welcome, Toby. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Toby Leonard. I'm the owner of Mankato Guns. Also, member of Libertarian Party Minnesota, and last two election cycles I've run for mayor of Mankato. Didn't quite win, but I got close. Maybe the third time's the charm. Hopefully. We can hope. Uh, so let's get into this conversation. Um, recently, we just had um, an appeal to the federal on an 18 to 20 year old ban on permits uh do you care to weigh in more on that oh yeah absolutely um so yeah last friday um literally five days ago there was a federal court of ruling well federal court appeal that basically ruled that minnesota can no longer deny permit to carry permits to 18 to 20 year olds now before we get into the logic of that we got to do a little bit of background we got to mention the bruin case this is a supreme court ruling that happened last summer and this, the Bruin case is about as big and significant to gun owners as Miranda. We're all familiar with Miranda rights. The Bruin case is actually, what it did was it, it established the current Supreme Court's system of analyzing Second Amendment issues and court cases. So in the past, whenever the Supreme Court would hear a Second Amendment case, it would base it upon what the government wanted, individual rights, past laws that might have had might be applicable and then of course some lip service to the actual text of the second amendment well with the bruin case the the bruin case was a case in new york about a man being denied permits to carry because the state the new york wanted him to have a good reason to carry and they would deny any reason If you had money, you could buy a permit. You could bribe everybody you needed to and get your reason approved. Otherwise, you were just not going to get a permit. Well, he sued. The Supreme Court looked at the case and they established with the current Supreme Court, their analysis is not the state's rights, individual rights, and then look at other laws. And then, of course, the text of the Second Amendment. The Bruin case, they shortened the analysis. They said, we're going to look at the, st- the text of the Second Amendment, and we're going to look for historic cases or historic laws relevant. But they decided that the only relevant historic laws they're going to take into consideration would be ones that were in effect when the Second Amendment was ratified. So any gun law that you want to implement or you want to use should be have a relevant similar law that was in effect or was had been in place prior to 1791 so how does it tie into uh this case that was just recently uh brought down 
Okay, so the way this ties in big time is that when the 18-year-olds, they start, they applied for permits two years ago. They got denied because of their age. They appeal, they sued the state. It got worked its way through the federal appeal, appellate court. And the federal appellate court um, basically laid out that it was not able to continue. Give me 10 seconds. I got a quick sure. run to the door and silence my dog. Tell me Sorry about that. Mean. My dog decided to answer the door and he'll bark all day if I don't do this. <laughs> um, okay. So how this applies is when the federal judge was looking at this um, court case, the basically the federal judge threw up her hands and said, well, under Bruin, there is no law that was in effect prior to 1791 that banned 18 year olds from carrying. So Minnesota has to allow 18 year olds to carry if they meet all the other criteria. So a couple of things they have to do is they have to get a conceal and carry class. They have to pass a background check and then the, the sheriff must issue them a permit. So the Bruin case, how it ties in, there's no law that prohibited 18 year olds from carrying before 1791. So now the federal court has ruled that Minnesota has to issue those permits. So basically, Toby, as far as the 18 to 21 year olds, they're on the same playing field right now with everybody else over 21. Is that right? That is correct. And right now, our uh, our governor has said they dislikes the ruling. The attorney general has said that they will look at their options, but he did not use the word appeal. He has asked the court to wait to give him 60 days to set up a system to approve 18-year-old permits or permits for 18, 19, and 20-year-olds. But whether or not that goes through is a good question. The uh, arguments are due today, Wednesday. So, But general, the chances of an appeal are very unlikely. The chances of an injunction are very unlikely because under the Bruin criteria, there's no appeal. There's not much of an argument. The state has to issue permits to 18-year-olds. It's just whether or not it's going to be today or maybe pushed off for 60 days. But otherwise, that's going to happen. And now that the Supreme Court has ruled that this is how they're going to look at Second Amendment cases, the federal courts are looking at it from under that criteria. And any appeals for state laws that go through the federal system will be judged under the Bruin criteria. It sounds so like great the, news for gun owners. Very yeah, good news. It really does. It's uh, actually the libertarian view of gun owners. It's <laughs> what does the Second Amendment say? Your rights will not be infringed. All right, cool. You will not be infringed. So is this going to be working for us as we the people going forward? Are we going to see more gun laws shot down under this ruling by chance? Oh, yes. As they work through the federal system, we'll start seeing them dropping. Uh, there are a couple things that are going to happen, though. States can still pass the laws. And until they're challenged in the federal system, then they won't get shot down until they're actually challenged. So, so we're how... seeing a whole bunch of gun laws in the state going through, but they may not be enforceable once they get once they work through the federal appeal system. So how does how does that get into the appeals system. How does somebody take a law like that and sue for whatever reason? 
Aha. Well, generally what it's going to require is, is you have to be uh, basically charged under it, convicted, and then appeal. Appeal through state system, appeal through federal system, go up to this. And once it gets into the federal, or if it's a law like this that denies you, you can sue the state. So, for example, they didn't get convicted of carrying. They just were not allowed to get a permit. So they sued the state. And that, and because you're suing a state, it's in the federal system. You don't have to sue them under state law. You can sue them under federal. So it will be one of those where you can sue the state and then it's in the federal system. And the federal judge will look at it and realize they don't really have an argument because under the Bruin criteria, they're kind of done. And while that's great news with the Bruin criteria in there for us, or, or the judges looking at that when making a decision on the federal level, it sounds like it, we all know how expensive lawsuits can be. It sounds like it would be a lot better to get pro 2A individuals elected so those laws aren't created in the first place to have to go in and undo them. Which is a great segue because if we take a look at what's happening on the state level, the state legislature is trying to pass a ton of anti-gun laws and basically gun control measures. And many of them will get shot down under the brewing criteria once it goes through the system. And I have questioned legislators who waste taxpayer time and money on making laws that will eventually just get overruled. And well, let's, let's talk specifically about the red flag laws. Uh, I think that would be of the most concern to liberty-minded people at this current stage. Uh, what do you know about what they're looking to do with this red flag laws that they're attempting to pass? Okay, well, so I went ahead. I went on to the uh, Minnesota Reviser of Statutes, basically pulling up the actual, the Office of the Reviser of Statutes. Here's the uh, House bill on red flag laws. And it's small print, but there's only about five pages. Here's the Senate bill. It's got about 35 pages or so. The Senate's trying to put in a whole bunch of gun anti-gun laws, but this House bill is, excuse me, specifically going after red flag laws. And some of it is actually um, a bad idea. Bad, okay, red flag laws are just generally a bad idea. We'll and Toby, right there, do you want to? Could you give us a little introductory to what a red flag law is? Okay, well, let's start with a couple things. I'm going to actually start with what what we can do without red flag laws. All right, there are a bunch of laws that actually are effective and useful that are not red flag laws, and they actually provide certain protections and guarantees, and they are accomplished better than red flag laws, and they're already on the books. So let's let's take an example of. Red flag laws, the theory is, is that you, if somebody is dangerous, you could contact your local police and they could red flag them and go and make sure that they don't have guns. Take their guns, make them transfer it. Now, the problem is, is that leaves the person with no help and pretty much they may end up having to surrender their guns. And those are expensive. Now, if we take a look at a couple options. Now, let's say you have a friend who's suicidal. All right. Now, there's things you can do. If you contact the police, the police can go take a look at them. And if they think that this is an unstable thing, they could bring them to a mental ward. There's various ones around the state. Um, and they could get a 72-hour hold. So there for three days, mental health professionals, 
people who actually specialize in this are evaluating them. If it turns out this person is actually dangerous to themselves, they'll hold them for the three days and they can start the process to hold them for a longer period of time until they're safe. While they're there for that 72 hour hold, they're being treated by actual mental health professionals and they're being monitored so they don't hurt themselves or others. All right. So there are mechanisms already in the law to basically allow you to keep somebody who's suicidal or dangerous themselves. Now, if you feel somebody is dangerous to others, somebody's like planning a mass shooting or something, um, there are other options there where they can take where if you have actual real evidence, you can contact the police. They can come investigate, find out that, yes, they are. They can pull them. They can get them help. All right. You don't need to red flag them. And there are actual, you have to provide evidence of those. You have to basically pass that on to the police. Um, lastly, they like the use red flag laws as a recommendation to stop domestic violence. We'll just be straight out honest. If you are convicted of domestic violence of either a felony or use of a weapon, you are banned from owning guns for life. You're done. It's, it's over as soon as you're convicted of that. If you have a stalking, if you stalking and they get a restraining order or an order for protection, the judge can write in a restraining order or protection that this person is not allowed to own guns. So there is already, order, what? There is already protections in place that this red flag law currently isn't going to make any better. Would that be correct? <laughs> That is correct. Actually, the protections in place are actually better because, for example, somebody who's suicidal or homicidal, they will get mental health care. Um, now, a red flag law, on the other hand, okay, so all the other ones require either mental health professionals or actual evidence or convictions. A red flag law circumvents all that. You don't need mental health professionals to evaluate the person, and you don't actually have to have evidence. You can just allege things. Um, basically, you just have to be a minimally convincing liar. Um, so and if we take, if we, what? Would there be any repercussions for a false accusation made under the red flag law if it turned out to be a false statement? We want, one would hope, but it's almost never occurs. Okay. They have to prove that you intentionally went out of your way. So unless you bragged about it and could, they could prove absolutely. So effectively to a red flag law, what, what it occurs is someone can just go to a police department, file a paper saying, Hey, I think this person's dangerous and I think they have guns. I think they have and make a list of guns you think they have. All right. And then they will hand it to a judge. The judge will make a decision. And if they choose to red flag it, the person would be served with a red flag notice. And they have 24 hours to give their guns to a family member, give their guns to a fire, to a gun dealer or surrender them to the police. Now, Officially, the law here in, that they have proposed says that when you per surrender them to the police, it might be temporary or permanent, but it does not say that the police have to accept them temporarily. 
So that means that you could just surrender them and the police could go, we only do permanent surrender. So you lost, it's gone. Um, they don't have to return it to you. And even if you do hand it to the police, they can charge you fees for storage. And if they hand it to a gun dealer, they can charge it fees for storage. But many gun dealers won't charge for these things because this is not usually a criminal issue. It's a, uh, it's usually retaliation from a scorned ex, which brings to the who can file one. If you actually look at the laws, it's a family member, a county attorney, a um, city attorney, a mental health protect practitioner or professional um and anyone who ha is or has been in a romantic or sexual relationship with you so it's kind of like your ex-girlfriend can suddenly red flag you because she's just angry and they can make up stuff and now you're red flagged now once you're red flagged you have you're told that you can request a hearing that has to occur within five days and at the hearing the judge will take a look at the situation and may drop the red flag law notice and let you go on. Or the judge may extend it to may go it's in effect. And if it's in effect, it's a minimum of six months to 24 months. And it can be extended another six months, to 24 months. So just, for somebody who's what I was going to say, just to clarify six months to 24 months, then you're, you're giving up your, your guns. True. Is that right? Yes. And so you basically, if you waive the hearing, you decide you don't want to have a hearing, the judge will just make that decision for you and just go six months, 24 months, and you can't have him for those. During that time, you can't possess them. You can't be, you can't use them. You can't go near them. Um, so there's a lot of problems with it um, because effectively there's no repercussions for retaliation. Um also, police departments can file these. Now, as a corollary to this, we, okay, the, the corollary, corollary to this is if for some reason a judge can be convinced that you didn't turn in all your guns, then he can issue a search warrant for your house, and it's a free search warrant. They can come in and search for whatever they want. Okay, they can come in to search for the guns, but if they find anything else, they can go after you. So if, so you got to understand if the police can issue in a red, can file the affidavit to get a red flag law and then can get a free search warrant from a judge because you got red flagged, that can get pretty ugly really fast. That sounds um, like a tool that would be very useful for law enforcement to go hunting would that be a fair statement i would use the phrase fishing you're just throwing out a hook and hoping to see what you can catch um and if you take a look at the criteria of which the uh judge is supposed to judge determine whether or not to issue a red flag law it's threats statements but also includes things like if you've had a a felony arrest so if you got arrested if you got arrested for some reason and it was for a felony, but no charges were ever filed, you were never convicted, or your charges were dropped, you can be red flagged. The police could effectively go, yeah, this person was arrested for a felony. We think they're a danger to people. We want to red flag them. 
And if a judge approved it, they could then get a free search warrant too. So if you were arrested for a felony and you were found innocent, do you lose your gun rights in the state of Minnesota? No, but it can be used as a basis for a red flag notice. And with uh, there's a, a book out there about how many felony felonies the average citizen commits a day unknowingly. <laughs> That's probably not a good uh, door to open. I know, and I was just I was just flipping through the law, and there's a, it's kind of some interesting little tweaks in there. Um, yeah, it's like it includes the um, exes. Well, it's like your law, your city attorney, or the chief of police, if you make the local chief of police or sheriff mad, they can just request a red flag law for a red flag notice for you. Mm. It's like that's asking for kind of trouble. And the big thing is, is that a petition for I'll just read the actual phrase, a petition for emergency release under Section 624, 7174. Um, shall additionally allege that the respondent presents an immediate and present danger of bodily harm. You don't have to have evidence. You just have to allege they are a danger. It's you're basically a red flag law cuts all the protections in our laws away. You no longer have to. It's no longer innocent until proven guilty. You're considered guilty. And then you have to try to fight to get it removed. Um, it's just kind of one of those. And they have a whole bunch of little things that go in there um yeah they oh they can actually red flag you if you are a a uh defendant in a lawsuit so if you're being sued by somebody that's actually a criteria for a red flag law well, and we all know how the laws end up getting abused. And, and besides the Second Amendment aspect to this, I'm just hearing a, a number of other issues with it from, Jason, as you had kind of hit on earlier, kind of similar to a swatting thing where you're making a false accusation against somebody. Um, the expense of somebody having to store these with the police department. I guess the, one of the questions, Toby, that comes to mind is the administration part to this. So you're required to surrender your guns to one option could be a family member who follows up with that to make sure that I did. I'm sure there's going to be some paperwork or some administrative process to make sure that I did give my guns to a family member and just didn't say I did. Uh, well, they're supposed to, uh, it says that you have to provide an affidavit that you have a affidavit that you have handed over to them and that they're signing that they have received them and they have them to include the make, model, and serial number. So now they know what guns you have. And that and leads to the, the other concern I heard with this is a national gun registry. Bingo, yeah. You've now had to notify them what you have. Now to further add to it is, as you mentioned, that this could be used as a swatting one. When the person is filing the original um, petition, they are gonna list what guns you have. And if they decide to embellish the list or add ones that aren't that you don't have, now you're not going to be able to say that you turned them over because they didn't exist. 
Mm. So now the, now the police can decide, well, since they said you had six guns, but you only turned four over to your family, now's a good time to get a good, easy search warrant. And now they can search your house. And because guns are small, they can search anywhere in your house. So wow. it's one of those things where this is, this is just ripe for abuse and it protect and it just cuts through all the legal protections that we have. Um, which is why red flag laws are just bad in, in there. And to be perfectly honest, you don't even need to own a gun to be a victim of this. Somebody could just go ahead, red flag you, claim you have guns. When you tell the police you don't have any, they go get a search warrant. Now you're basically having your house searched. They get to swat you, even though you don't own a gun. Wow. So. Yeah, and I like how you segmented in the beginning the, the different reasons that are being given as to why red flag laws are potentially a good thing. And they're saying, well, because of the, the safety of somebody who is suicidal. Um, and then you said the homicidal one. So I, I think the, the big thing that I heard at one point, I was at the, the uh, gun owners caucus rally and they were talking about the suicidal aspect. If, if that's truly a concern, we've taken away somebody's guns. We haven't dealt with the, the mental health part of it to help them. And two, we left them with a bunch of other tools in the house that certainly could be used if they intend to inflict harm on themselves. Yeah. If, if you are suicidal, you don't need to get red flagged. You need to get a 72-hour hold. You need to be put in a safe, secure place um, with actual mental health pro professionals who will evaluate you for suicide. They will start treating you for depression, and they will make sure you don't harm yourself. On the other hand, you red flag somebody. Well, if they reached, let's say somebody reached out to say their sister saying, hey, I'm having trouble, I'm feeling suicidal, and her sister red flagged them. They have nobody to reach out to ever again because the person they reached out to just had the cops swat them, take all their guns that are actually generally pretty expensive. And now they have even less to live for and they can't even trust the government. If, if they trust the government before, but we'll assume they can't trust the government now. Now they're really suicidal and you didn't get them any help. On the other hand, you call and get a 72 hour hold. You know what? If it turns out that you were just swatting them and a 72 hour hold, it'll be about 24 hours before the mental health staff go, you know what? This person's not suicidal. We can release them. They're okay. This was all just some retaliation for something or swatting. Um, so that's kind of where you need that mental health practitioner in there to evaluate you. Red flag laws, there's no mental health evaluations in it at all. It's just cops, judges, and somebody who wants to red flag you. And, and great point, Toby, because if you are in that situation where you're, you're thinking suicide, are you going to be more or less willing to reach out to somebody for help with the potential of the red flag law kicking in. Exactly. It's a, it's a discouragement to getting help. It, it almost seems like these laws could potentially be put in place to give law enforcement 
an extra advantage on the things that they're looking to do would there be some validity to that to that statement oh yes um if you happen to be one of those people who goes on youtube and check first amendment auditors who just videotape police all the time you'll notice that quite often the police retaliate this is a this is an easy way to retaliate if you sue the police because they uh, arrested you because you're a First Amendment auditor, even though you're innocent, they can now retaliate under a red flag law and they can swat you. And so they can point out that you're a danger to people because whatever answer, whatever reason they made up. So it's one of those where police retaliation could be a real thing with this. Um, actually, I'll use an example of retaliation. Uh, Colorado, when they put the red flag laws in a place about three years ago, the first person to get flagged under a red flag law was a county sheriff. Uh, yes, that's the look you should have is what's going on. What happened was, is a woman was very angry. Um, she had a she had a son who was like 19 or 20. He was tripping on drugs. The sheriff arrived on the scene and the guy attacked him. So the sheriff shot and killed this 19, 20 year old. So the mom was mad at the county sheriff. As soon as the red flag law went into effect, she actually went ahead and petitioned for a red flag notice against the sheriff and got it served and got it approved by a judge. And the sheriff promptly ignored it. He just continued to carry a gun because it was it was quite literally a fictitious one. And the reason she was able to file it is she claimed her and the sheriff had a child together. He had never met the woman, never newer it just she was able to lie on the notice on the affidavit get it filed um so it's kind of big time retaliation it is designed for retaliation and remove all the other protections and then of course the corollary to this is the sheriff chose to ignore the red flag law that he had been served with he was not supposed to own a gun but he still carried his sidearm and still went to work and everything um until he finally was able to get it overturned in Colorado it was much harder to get it overturned. So for a few months before he got it overturned, but it's still kind of, there's a whole bunch of wrongs in that situation and it's designed for abuse. So is there any value to the red flag law that they are attempting to pass at this time? Is there anything that would be valuable to the general public? Um, no, no, every single thing that you can benefit from this can already be benefited through either one, a, uh, order for protection. A judge can add on to an order for protection. That's a, um, order for protection is basically a restraining order. It's another, it's another type of restraining order, or you can do it by getting the mental health care with a 72 hour hold. And then. I say a 72 hour hold because those are easy. You can effectively get locked up for almost any reason in a mental institute for 72 hours. And then the, then the uh, mental health people will determine whether or not you need to stay longer. Um, you can even voluntarily go in for a 72 hour hold. And if it turns out that you actually are suicidal or dangerous, they can move forward to a longer period, but then you actually get mental health care. So, so anything, really within the red flag laws, do they actually protect we the people 
against gun violence at quote unquote gun violence or criminal behavior in any way? No, uh, criminals are criminals. They're, they're going to do what they do. And if they're criminals right off the bat, they will just get a different gun and continue on with what they are. As far as mass shootings, that is actually a mental health issue. If you wanted to stop that, calling the getting, if you suspected somebody was going that mentally ill, that they were going to do a mass shooting, then that is a 72 hour hold situation. That's a mental health issue. It's not a gun issue. It's a mental health issue. And so we should get them mental health care, not just take their guns because now they know to get super secret and stockpile a little better. And that's the one thing I think that I've found with a lot of people that are pro second amendment. And I think this often gets overlooked in a lot of coverage pro second amendment. People seem to be very concerned and, and very willing to get people that need mental health help the help. Yeah. Yet there, there, it seems like we're, we're constantly told that second amendment people are just pro gun. That's all you guys just want your guns. That's all you really care about. No, we, we care about people. We care about the mental health aspect. And we see this as an avenue to help people get help with mental health. Yeah. We, we're, we don't want to hurt people. We want to actually kind of help people. And if you need mental health care, you need mental health care. Absolutely. So. Toby, as far as you mentioned Colorado nationally, um, a quick search I did earlier showed there's currently about 20 states. Does that sound about right with red flag laws in yes. effect? And but the, the I guess thing that I saw and I was going, oh, wow, I didn't realize there was there, that many. There is currently 13 of them that are states that have it as a proposal. And knowing what I'm learning from you about red law, red flag laws, I don't think that's a good option to, to go down. So what sort of things can we do specifically in Minnesota here to help stop this from becoming a law? Okay. First of all, contact the legislators and explain to them that we need to get mental health care for these people, not go take their guns. We need to get them actually mental health care. Um, the other one is, is New York just got their light red flag law struck down in federal court. And that was under the Bruin consideration. There's, there were the uh, federal appeal court just basically struck down a red flag law in New York because it did not serve any of the purposes and was just being abusive. So there is something, there is some things that these red flag laws are starting to be cut, struck down. And I think explain to the legislators that you're writing a law that will be struck down when it's challenged. Maybe you should stop, focus on what can actually be done and stop wasting taxpayer money on this kind of stuff. So would it be fair to say that some of these laws attempt, they attempt to pass them so they will get held up in litigation and in courts for multiple months and sometimes years. Um, so they have use of these laws for that time. Um, I would, okay, that would be a minor reason. I suspect more of it is just purely trying to pander to their voting base, claiming, oh, we're passing this law, knowing full well the law won't be able to, won't, will be struck down. And I don't think they actually consider the, well, we're going to tie it up for a few months and then we'll make it expensive to fight it. 
because now that a lot of the gun rights groups are starting to finance some of these lawsuits, um, it's less about the finances of striking it down and tying it up. I think it's more of just pandering to their base and not understanding that you're wasting everybody's time. And I think we should, as citizens, we should hold our legislators responsible for reducing the cost to taxpayers because there's no reason we should be fighting for red flag laws that are a lost cause from the beginning. That's Except a great point. Virtue, I think the phrase of virtue signaling is probably appropriate. Right. Culturally speaking, I would agree. Um, culturally, what does this really benefit? The red flag laws? Yes. Um, I don't think culturally it benefits anything. It just basically does virtue signaling. And it's for people who don't understand that there are other avenues that are more effective. There are ways to get people mental health care that they need. But instead, you're just trying to take away their guns, which is just a small symptom when really the bigger problem is mental health. So that's kind of where the red flag laws, they're not useful. And the other thing that they're trying to push through is a uh, universal background checks, which I think we have a few minutes to cover a little bit on. Yeah, let's um, do that. Okay, we'll mention a few things. They're trying to push through universal background checks. And uh, the theory is, is that we want to make sure that everybody gets a background check before they get a gun. Um, the statistics, the real statistics are somewhere around 96% of firearm transfers are done through a dealer and a background check is done. So virtually we're talking only 4% of the pop, 4% of all the gun transfers are actually done as a private transfer. And even those are mostly between family members and friends. Now you would know if you're say giving a gun to your brother, whether or not he's been to prison. You'd probably figure out whether or not he was legally allowed to own a gun. So there really is no nest, there's no need for a background check on those. Um, they claim the universal background checks will keep the guns out of the hands of criminals. We'll be honest. Criminals are criminals. If they're buying a gun, everybody knows it's illegal. If you're taking a gun and you're selling it to your drug dealer because he can't pass a background check, you know what you're doing is a crime. He knows what you're doing is a crime. Universal background check won't have an won't have an effect on you. Um, and so these universal background checks are kind of a, it sounds good, but it really does no effect. And of those little 4%, only a small sliver are between strangers. It's very rare you'll find somebody who wants to buy your gun who you don't know. And if you do, you, you can always go into any gun dealer and just go, hey, I want to sell this to this guy. Can you run a background check on him? And dealers can do private party transfers so that we can run background checks already. It's just this um, there. Well, and one of the statistics they pointed out to, I, I, I say very clearly about 4% are private party transfers because that's the actual pra real practical statistic. What happened was is about 10 years ago, Harvard sent a group of sociologists to the NRA convention and they had a, surveyed them and they asked people if they've received in the last year a gun, either received or um, transferred a gun to another without, um, without doing a background check. 
All right. Now understand most of these are between friends, family members, and they found out about 40% of the people at the the NRA national convention had received or transferred a gun without a background check. Um, now there's a couple problems with that study. One, we're talking about very major gun people. They're actually planning their vacation around the convention. And second of all, they quite often get things from their family, friends, stuff like that. And they're just saying whether or not they received one in the last year. And so they were, so some of the people were taking that study and saying 40% of guns are passed without background checks. Well, no, really it's about 4% because when Colorado instituted their universal background checks, um, I think six years ago, they went ahead, they implemented universal background checks and they set up a whole call center to handle background checks from non-dealers and such. And they found out that they were off by a factor of 10. They were expecting so many thousands of background checks, but turns out it's only about 4% of the people. Um, some other glitches with the universal background checks is if you require universal background checks on everybody, then we run into little glitches of how do you get your gun out of a, if your gun is picked up for some reason, um, let's say your house gets burglarized, they catch the criminal, the police take the gun, bring it into the evidence room. How do you get it back? Police can't run background checks. It is only gun dealers who can do that. So the police would have to take it to a gun dealer. The gun dealer would have to do the background check and hand it to the person. Well, some police departments see that as an expense and just choose not to do it. So now there's no way to get your gun out of the evidence room and suing them will cost more than your gun's worth. So they were, it was becoming a way to just surrender guns as abandoned property. So, well, think about it. If you're a police department, you picked one up, you could either pay one of your officers to go to a gun shop, hand it over, have the person come into a background check, pick it up there, or you could just leave it in the evidence room until it's abandoned property and then sell it and use the money yourself or use the gun for your own department. Um, so they're running into those problems where some of the, uh, Police departments were just not releasing guns from the evidence room because they claimed under universal background checks, they weren't allowed to. Um, so it's universal background checks is a solution looking for a problem and the problem doesn't exist. The other people who will get caught in a universal background check problem is things like you sell the gun to your next door neighbor. Okay, you probably knew him your whole life, and they're not a criminal, not there. It's, and that's the person who's going to get caught with it. Um, basically, it's like, yep, I sold it to somebody who's not a relative. Some of the uh, caveats in the universal background check was you could give it to somebody in your family without a problem or immediate family, but it'll be those little minor glitches where. They're not quite immediate family, but they're close enough. You know, it's safe. Currently under Minnesota law, you can transfer to another person without a background check. As long as they can legally own the gun. If they can't legally own the gun, you can't do it. If they're you, if they use it in a crime, you've got a lot of explaining to do and probably guilty of a crime also. So there's already some safeguards in place. It's just one of those where 
it sounds wonderful to demand universal background checks, but we're we're talking 96% of gun transfers are gone through dealers with background checks. The last little 4%, most are between family members. And when you start getting to the criminals, they're criminals. They don't care. Right. So is there anything in the red flag and the universal background check right now that would make Minnesota safer if these laws were passed? No, <laughs> no, not even close. Um, and Toby, just to, to give some the viewers an idea here, like if I come into your shop and I want to purchase a, a shotgun versus a uh, pistol, what, what is, is there a different processes in place? What, what does somebody already undergo for a background check? All right. Our, if you come in and you want to buy a shotgun, um, what we'll do is first thing we'll do is we'll figure out which shotgun you want. And then we'll uh, start the background check paperwork. You're going to sign a federal 4473 form. We're going to get your name, your address, date, birth, everything like that. Uh, you're going to answer a whole bunch of questions. The questions are, is this your gun? Are you keeping it? Are you going to transfer it to somebody who can't legally have a gun? Are you planning on giving it to somebody who can't legally own a gun? Have you ever been committed to a mental institute? Have you been dishonorably discharged from the Army? Have you been convicted of a felony? Under, are you under indictment for a felony? Are you a fugitive from justice? Um, let's see. Have you ever been uh, determined to be mentally defective? Are you an illegal alien? Are you, legal, are you legally in the U.S.? A whole string of questions like that. If at any point you lie on that form, in and of itself, that is a felony with one to 10 years in prison, federal prison. Okay, so you've gone through that. I'm going to check your ID. Then I'm going to actually contact the FBI, and I'm going to run it through their FBI background check system. It's going to quick check the database, and it's going to give me one of three results. It's going to be, yes, this person's safe. Give him a gun. Two, no, this person is illegal. Can you give us your this person's address? And they're going to and they're going to notify your local police department within 24 hours that you are a prohibited person and you just tried to buy a gun. All right. And then, or third option is they're not sure. They want three days to think about it. And they're going to they're going to give a delay and it's going to be a three day delay. It's going to be and it's three business days. So today's Wednesday. They would count, if you ran a background check now, they will count it as Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday. You can have your firearm if they haven't gotten back a result from the background check. Okay, so now if the FBI, has, who's checked your background and verified everything, says you can have the shotgun, here you are. Pay for it, it's yours. Um, now, if you're, say, getting a pistol or in Minnesota, a semi-automatic assault rifle, you have a second step that you have to do. You have to go to, prior to coming into the gun shop, you have to go to your local police department or sheriff and get a permit to carry or a permit to purchase. They're going to run a background check. They're going to verify, okay, there's nothing prohibiting you. And you're going to get a little card in the mail saying, yes, you can buy a gun, a permit to purchase. Or if you've gone through all the steps to get a permit to carry, you can have your permit to carry card. And then when you come into the shop, you're going to show me your permit to purchase, your permit to carry, your driver's license. And we're going to go through that same background check that we did for the shotgun. And if the FBI says good, you get it. If the FBI says no, they're going to notify the police who tried to buy one. If the FBI says give us three days, we'll give you a delay. So you're already getting background checks whenever you come into a gun shop. All right. I think this is going to be a good place to 
uh, wrap up on this conversation, we are going to be bringing in uh, a guest to talk about the upcoming convention. Awesome. Oh, oh it looks like it's going to be a few moments till uh, we can bring her in. So let's uh, let's continue this conversation for a few more moments. My apologies. Perfect. Well, I can continue talking. <laughs> and, and, I used to teach college classes. I can go for hours. <laughs> well, Wait, it, are, we, are we hyping the convention? We are going to be hyping the convention. Hey, silent auction. We donated a bulletproof vest. Looks remarkably like this one. Oh, nice. I like it. Oh, wait, we should zoom in so you guys can see the patch. There we are. It's a little tough to read. What does it say there, Toby? Make taxation theft again. I love it. <laughs> that is perfect. Yeah, so, that so is I donated one of these, and actually, I'm going to have a second one with me because if you just, I donated the large size for the large, extra large, double X people. And if you're smaller and you would prefer the smaller size, I'll have it. We'll just trade it out so you can have a size that fits you. But yeah, it'll hold up, to, it'll stop up to 44 Magnum. Oh, wow. And that's going to be a silent auction item. Is that right? Yes, it is. Excellent. And as I understand it, you're going to have a booth at the convention this year. I will not have a booth at the convention. I'm, uh, I don't have the staff to staff a booth at the convention. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's good to know that. I, I, I know you were there last year, bought some oh, really yeah. cool patches from you. Oh yeah. Patches <laughs> are always fun. I oh, like yeah. the, I like the make taxation theft again, and the uh, there is no there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> That's so great. great. Yeah, Toby, you'd you'd mentioned is we're just kind of going back to gun laws for a moment. This legislative, oh, sure. there there were some more that I guess of what I understand have been kind of tabled at this point here. Um, anything else besides that red flag law and the universal background check that's on the radar? Oh, wow. If I were to flip through the uh, Senate bill, um, they have a bunch of them. A gun registry. They were pushing for a gun registry. They were pushing for what a gun registry is. Um, a gun registry is kind of like a driver's license, uh, your license plate. You can click on it. You can enter in the serial number and it'll tell you who's, who the owner is. That's what a gun registry is. Now, currently... There is no gun registry in Minnesota. So if you own a gun, it's your gun and you don't have to go to the government and explain who you gave it to or who you sold it to. All right. Now, okay. Just to clarify, guns are traceable. They're just trace. There just isn't a gun registry to, to creep into your privacy. You can own a gun. Nobody needs to know about it. So let's say, for example, we find a gun is found at a bank robbery. They pick up the gun, and it's like a Smith & Wesson model M&P, and it's got a serial number of blah, blah, blah. They can contact the ATF tracing center and say, hey, we found the Smith & Wesson. Here's the serial number. And the ATF would contact, contact Smith & Wesson and go, hey, this gun with this serial number, where did it go? And Smith & Wesson has 24 hours to turn around and tell the ATF, where they sold it. They'll say it went to such and such wholesaler. That wholesaler 
would then they contact the wholesaler. The wholesaler has got 24 hours to say where they sold it. And they'll say, we shipped it to such and such gun shop. That gun shop will be contacted and they'll go, where did you sell it? And they will pull out the background check form, that 4473 we talked about earlier. And they're going to say, I sold it to this person whose address is this on this day. And then they'll go ahead, they'll contact that person and go, so where is it? And as long as you're not the last person in the chain, it's okay. Um, so you don't have to have a registry to track things. A registry just is a privacy issue because now you can literally look up who has what gun, how many guns do you have? So, and then you get the irritation of, well, the glitches of, so if you sell a gun to somebody, you have to notify the registry that there's been a change. So they had a whole bunch of stuff in the Senate. The gun registry was one of the bigger ones that was out there. Also, they were going to ban semi-automatic assault rifles um, outright. Uh, they were going to grandfather in ones you already have, but they were going to ban them. Uh, that one was kind of weird because nobody really knows exactly what a semi-automatic assault rifle is. It's just kind of if it looks big and scary, it's, it is. If it's not big and scary, it isn't. So the state of Minnesota hasn't defined what they consider an assault rifle. Is that correct? They defined it, but the definition is really weird. Let me get, I'll just pull up the definition real quick. Um, it, I actually have it in here once I find it to the right page. Basically what they did is they said a semi-automatic assault rifle is a semi-automatic rifle that has any of these traits. Um, yeah, uh, the it's semi-automatic and it has things like, okay, has slight modification or enhancement included but not limiting to a folding or retractable stock, adjustable sight, case deflector for left-handed shooters, shorter barrel, wooden plastic or metal stock, larger clip size, different caliber, bayonet mount, um, anything that's kind of identical to some of the ones that go there uh or includes any of the following can accept a de detachable magazine and has one of the more of the following pistol grip or thumb hole stock inner any feature capable of functioning as a protruding grip to be held by the non-trigger hand uh a folding or telescopic stock a shroud attached to the barrel or partially or completely encircles the barrel i don't even know what a barrel shroud is and i sell guns um <laughs> I don't think the legislator knows what they're doing either. A semi-automatic pistol or semi-automatic centerfire rimfire with fixed magazine that can accept more than 10 rounds, has the capacity to accept detachable magazines, and it's just basically a whole bunch of things. And so it's, for example, a Ruger 1022. It's a rifle you use to teach Cub Scouts how to shoot. My daughter took her Ruger 1022. She took out one screw. She put in a new stock. She is now converted to a semi-automatic assault rifle. Why? Because the stock is black and has a folding stock. <laughs> Before the, when it was pink, it was no problem. So yeah. Um, it's one of those things where it's so they, anything that looks scary suddenly becomes a semi-automatic assault rifle. 
And despite the uh, AR, can you talk real briefly about that? Because I often hear people say that, well, AR, that's an assault rifle, the, the manufacturer. Do you, okay. you ever get that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we got to actually mention what it is. AR is actually refers to Armalite Rifle. Armalite was a company in California in the early 50s. They did to guns what Henry Ford did to the Model T car. They made a mass-produced assembly line gun. Um, up until this point, gun manufacturers would make the parts, and literally a master gunsmith would sand and smooth each part so it fit together. So parts weren't replaceable. It'd be like going in to get your oil changed, but the mechanic had to spend 10 minutes um, grinding down the oil filter to fit because every car had a different oil filter connection. All right. So it was, it was always kind of this craftsman thing. They had assembly lines, but they weren't well designed with interchangeable parts. Armalite went ahead and in the 50s, they got a great idea. Let's make interchangeable parts. Let's use plastics. And this was not, uh, basically fiber-enforced nylon. And they made this thing called an Armalite rifle number 15. And they tried to sell it to militaries. Nobody wanted it. No, It was low power. It's not that impressive. Nobody really wanted it. It just happened to be kind of assembly line. And it worked okay. They eventually gave up and sold it to Colt. Colt went ahead and made a bunch of changes to it. And, and they converted over to full automatic and made an M16 out of it. And that went to the Vietnam War and it worked out okay. And the military kind of adopted it. Now, all us vets, we're very familiar with how the controls operate on it and how to maintain it. So we kind of went for the civilian version, the AR-15. And all it is is a mass-produced gun that has interchangeable parts. And it's the reason it is so popular is it's considered a Lego set for adults. I can take the whole thing apart using two wrenches, one screwdriver, a hammer, and a nail. Every single piece can come apart with those tools. <laughs> a nail? Well, you have to have a punch to push out some of the pins. Okay, that makes sense to me. Uh... I, could, I, could, I could throw the hammer away and use a rock if I wanted to. It's fair. I mean, it was designed so that 18-year-olds could be taught how to, in the military, you could teach them in about three or four hours how to do all maintenance on it. So these things were there. And it's considered Lego sets for adults because you can do so many things. You want to change the caliber from a full-size rifle round to a 22. Um, it takes about 30 seconds. I push one takedown pin out, take the uh, bolt carrier group out, put a new bolt carrier group in, push that pin back in place, and then use a different magazine. Um, if I want to convert it into a 410 shotgun, push that pin out, push the front pin out, put that aside, put a different upper on, push those two pins back in, use a different magazine, and now I got a 410 shotgun. I want to turn it into a pistol, or if I have a pistol and I want to turn it into a rifle, take the stock off, put a pistol brace on, two pins out, top goes on, two pins back on. You could do a lot of conversions with it, and literally your tools are almost nothing. Um, you need just a couple things. So it's a Lego set for adults. And a lot of people go, yeah, it's an assault rifle because it looks big and scary. And it's like, mm, no, nah, it's actually kind of underpowered for a lot of the stuff that people would use it for. 
it's great for deer hunting and actually even deer hunting it's a little underpowered people usually pick a gun that shoots a bigger bullet um it's good for coyote hunting uh down here in southern minnesota there's a lot of coyote hunters who use it because coyotes are kind of smaller than deer and they can drop it with that um but otherwise yeah people go it's an assault rifle well no it's an armalite rifle and it was kind of the first mass-produced ones with interchangeable parts i can take the parts from any of them and swap them into any other one and it will still function i appreciate that uh history on that uh this looks like it's going to be a good spot for us to wrap up this episode heather is not going to be able to join us this evening so it looks like we will be hyping the convention next week uh toby thank you for coming on and, and sharing your insight with us this week uh yeah, Troy, I was just going to say real quick, Toby, anything you want to plug or, or mention? Oh, hey, I, I'm going to be at the convention, but otherwise, yeah, Mankato Guns. Hey, if you're down in Mankato, check us out. Others can check us out online. And we also do conceal and carry classes. And if you go to the convention, go check out Maj Trey. He's going to be giving some presentations through there. All right. All right. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Toby. Thank you for having me. All right, and that is Minnesota Weekly.